Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, June 24th, 2022. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from the American Library Association Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. The ALA Annual Conference kicks off this afternoon with an opening general session. What are you expecting from the show, the first in-person event for ALA since the pandemic began? Yeah, it's really interesting that I don't know what to expect from this annual conference. You know, as you say, it comes after two years of virtual annual conferences for ALA. And I will say this much, the ALA conferences that were done virtually were pretty good. I think the ALA did a very good job there. I'm excited to be back uh, at an ALA annual conference, but I know this much. I can say this much about the conference. I think it needs to be good. It really does. You know, I was in Portland, Oregon in March for the Public Library Association conference. And I can tell you that the librarians who were there were very, very happy to be back together. And the energy at that meeting was high. But the attendance numbers, not so much, a little less than half of what a a PLA conference would have drawn before COVID. And so for ALA, I think, I honestly think the pressure is on a little bit here. I I think a normal ALA conference in Washington, D.C. should draw a little over 20,000. Indeed, the last ALA conference in D.C. drew about 21,000, I think. And D.C. shows are always the best attended. So I think ALA needs to see in-person attendance over 10,000, or I think there's going to be some some real questions, some, some, some tough questions about the future of ALA's annual conference. Just what kind of pressure is ALA feeling, Andrew, and where is it coming from? So many reasons, right? There's so many things that are putting pressure on ALA. Now, I should point out that I'm not a librarian. I've been covering the library world for many years. But I want to stress here that the news and views that I'm sharing are straight up observational from a reporter's perspective. But pressure on the ALA, where to even start? I guess the first place to start is with the obvious, right? The pandemic. Now, the show in D.C. is going to be as safe as possible. I think there's a vaccination requirement to go into the show hall. Masks are required at the conference, too. But there's no question that the pandemic has really, really taken a toll on the library community these last couple of years, and library workers especially. And I think the profession really needs some time and space to heal and to really reconsider a future where librarians and library workers are, you know, they feel kind of chewed up and spat out in the wake of this crisis. So I'm going to be really curious to see how ALA approaches its membership at this show and how it envisions this return to in-person events where, frankly, most of us are still trying to figure out how we're going to go back to the office, much less a major event. And I think we're going to be it's going to be interesting to see how the program here is received and whose voices are elevated and who we're hearing from the stages. Suffice it to say, I think librarians who you know go to D.C. really need to leave the show with the sense that they had a meaningful, solid, good experience. Otherwise, I think there's going to be, as I said before, tough questions about the future of the ALA show going forward. I think this conference It's also, frankly, a significant bellwether for conferences in general. So I'll be watching very closely how the major publishers, for example, respond. If they are all back, if there's a a lot of them on the show floor, if they have their big booths, if there's a lot of author signings and a lot of high energy. You know, last week we spoke about how the major publishers were sort of, you know, wondering if maybe ALA might carry the load for the now defunct Book Expo America in terms of having a stage and a place to break big books and author talks. So... You know, I'm going to be watching the show floor at this ALA very closely. 
And, and frankly, I'm a little concerned, and I'm going to admit right out that this is a little inside baseball for most of our listeners, but you know, I haven't reported this yet, but ahead of this conference, a lot of the ALA staff, staff that I've worked with for years – including the communications team, just kind of left. They just kind of up and quit. And, you know, this includes the head of the ALA's Washington office, Kathy Cromer, who I have to say has done pretty solid work over the years. And look, I don't know why any of this has happened. I mean, it could just be natural, right? We're coming out of this pandemic. It's, it's time for changes in people's lives. But I do know this much. When your Washington office director quits days before your first annual conference in two years that's in Washington, <laughs> well, it does make you wonder if there's something else going on. So I'm going to be very curious about how ALA as an organization looks at this show. And, you know, I want to be clear, too, uh, when the new ALA executive director, Tracy Hall, took the reins of this organization in January of 2020, she did so with a mandate for change. She did so with a mandate to really shake things up. The association was in a financial crisis. There was a clear mandate. In fact, there was a years-long effort to sort of talk about how the ALA needed to modernize and change the association, including its conferences. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and we basically all went onto Zoom for two years. And then, of course, the nation had this racial and social justice awakening as well. And now we have book banning and challenges to our democracy and tension over ebooks. And there's all these major issues that are hitting the library community at the same time that its organization, its major association, is trying to sort of reconsider and reform for the future. So again, I think there's a lot of pressure on librarians and the ALA here in Washington, D.C. I think to say that it needs to be an important meeting and a successful meeting is an understatement. I really think it does. On one hand, you know, just pulling this off, I think is going to be, it would qualify for me as a major achievement, right? The first ALA annual conference in three years. So that would be a major achievement. At the same time, I also believe that the ALA needs to do a little better than that. In Virginia, a lawsuit focusing on a state obscenity law is now in the hands of a judge after authors and publishers of a book that was targeted for banning have moved to dismiss. Yes, some some interesting developments and actually two closely watched lawsuits in Virginia. It's basically one action, but there's two separate suits, uh, both of which cite this obscure state obscenity law uh, and lawyers for the authors and the publishers filed in court last week and basically argued that the case must be thrown out. Uh, I should note that bookseller Barnes & Noble also filed a brief to have the case thrown out last week. And I guess I should just take a step back and remind our listeners what this case is. I'm sure they've seen it in the headlines. These cases were first filed in May by a lawyer and a Republican Virginia Assembly delegate, Tim Anderson, on behalf of a plaintiff who is a Republican congressional candidate named Tommy Altman. And the suits allege that the graphic memoir Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi and A Court of Mist and Fury by bestselling author Sarah J. Moss are, and I'll quote their suit here, obscene for unrestricted viewing by minors. And last month on May 18th, a retired local judge found that there was probable cause for these obscenity claims and actually ordered the authors and publishers to answer the charges. And that raised the possibility that the court might actually bar these books from public display and restrict booksellers and librarians in the state from providing these books to minors without parental consent. And that really has alarmed observers, you know, especially because when that, you know, show cause order came through from the court, it was really touted as a big win for the plaintiffs. By the plaintiffs, I should point out. It wasn't a big win, of course. Finding probable cause is an extreme. It's a very low standard. It's the most base standard there is. And, you know, that that finding was touted as a big win is a little disingenuous because it merely just got us to the next step in the case. 
Well, those next steps in the case came last week when lawyers for Kababi and her publisher, Oni Press, and Sarah J. Moss and her publisher, Bloomsbury, along with lawyers for Barnes & Noble, told the court that these suits filed under this obscure Virginia obscenity law are defective and that the remedy that they seek is unconstitutional. Now, those expecting these filings, you can read about them on the PW site. I've linked to the documents and I've written about them. But if you're expecting these to be sort of like soaring defense of their clients and the freedom to read, you're going to be disappointed because the filings are very brief and they're very technical. For example, they argue that the case should be tossed because it was not properly pled, right, that other people should have been joined to the action. They they argue here that the law was misapplied. For example, this obscenity law apparently authorizes a court to have obscene books removed but not to deliver a finding of obscenity. And it specifically does not authorize a court to declare that a book is obscene for unrestricted viewing by minors, which is something else entirely. Now, of course, the lawyers also state the obvious in their filings, and that is that the books in question do not come close to the standard for obscenity as established by the Supreme Court, which requires that materials, even if they contain explicit content, have to be found to lack serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. And that just ain't the case with these books, right? Maya Kababi's Gender Queer is a well-reviewed, highly acclaimed, award-winning coming-of-age story, while A Court of Mist and Fury is a best-selling novel, uh, also with really strong reviews. So, Not so much for that uh, obscenity argument. And lawyers for Barnes & Noble also argue in their brief that, you know, any action in this case by the state would violate the bookseller's free speech and free press rights under the First Amendment and their due process rights under the 14th Amendment. And remember, this all began with a complaint against Barnes & Noble for carrying these books, if you're wondering why Barnes & Nobles is in the middle of this. And I think there's a few other things to note here, too. And one is that it's clear that the lawyers – don't even want to entertain this absurd notion that these books are actually obscene in their, their files. That's probably why they're so brief, because they're clearly not. There, you know, there hasn't been a book declared obscene in the U.S. in like 50 years. And these books are certainly no exception. And, and further, I think this law in Virginia, frankly, very few lawyers know how to handle it because it is so obscure. And well, obviously, it's so surely con- unconstitutional. You know, specifically, this law in Virginia is a citizen action law, right? It basically empowers anyone to file suit over the provision of a- allegedly obscene materials. And what makes that, I think, so dangerous is, for one, if the suit advances, we can imagine people all over the state choking the courts with claims against books. And we see the organized nature of the book banning that's going on. Well, we can imagine the organized nature of like suits like this being filed too. And the other thing is that while these laws don't appear to be on the books in other states, if this case in Virginia shows any degree of success, if it moves along at all, it's not a stretch to think that we might see these laws start popping up in other states, especially in red states. So while we wait for the judge's ruling, Andrew, what are the possibilities? So at first time, it's unclear what the next steps are going to be. The judge could obviously toss the case for defective pleading right here, in which case you have to wonder if those cases, if the cases will resurface. Uh, the court could also order a hearing, which would be interesting, to say the least. But there's something else that's bearing on the case here, too, that I want to point out. And that's that the plaintiff in the case, congressional candidate Tommy Altman, who was running for the Republican congressional nod, was trounced in the Republican primary this week. Altman lost by more than 41 points. Now, 
Altman had sought to portray the suit in the media as this an issue of parental rights. It's not about book bans. It's about parental rights. And that's a talking point we've seen all over the country with this book banning. And actually, it takes a page from Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin's successful campaign playbook last year. So I think many people sort of saw this suit as a way to get attention, as a campaign tactic. And now that the campaign is over, people are wondering whether the plaintiffs will have the stomach let me be more accurate here, the pocketbook, <laughs> to continue this legal fight. Uh, meanwhile, publishers, librarians, and free speech advocates, and this includes the American Booksellers for Free Expression, the American Library Association, the AAP, the Authors Guild, and PEN America, among them, are not taking any chances. They're issuing public statements, and they're warning about this case, because it does represent another disturbing front in the surge of book bans that we've seen nationwide. Uh, in their statement, they note that Outright prohibiting the sale and distribution of books is, and I'll quote them here, an affront to our democratic values and threatens each person's and each family's individual liberties. It's contrary to, to our principles of democracy to allow anyone, regardless of their beliefs or political position, determine what other Americans can read, which, of course, is absolutely true and on point. And sadly, it should be obvious, but apparently not so much. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the next podcast from CCC, when Dr. Laura Burke began writing her first textbook on child development, her work followed her home from the classroom at Illinois State University. There was research and writing to do, of course, and there were her own children to care for and learn from. At the time, the early career professor had two young sons, then ages 8 and 11. Today, Dr. Burke's textbooks are widely adopted by college instructors and much praised by them and their students. She is particularly recognized for taking an inclusive approach in her work. The U.S., I think, is undergoing unprecedented change in uh, ethnic, cultural diversity. Uh, it's vital that we authors represent that uh, on virtually almost every page uh, of our text. So, um, uh, it's also important that we represent it in um, uh, illustrations for students. I think students are expecting to find discussions in the text they can relate to. They want to see themselves and their own cultural and ethnic backgrounds uh, in the text. And they want to see images that look like themselves. And uh, they should expect that. And we have a responsibility to deliver on that. With respect to LGBTQ, I included in my titles early on evidence on development of kids in lesbian and gay families, uh, of development of uh, gender minority children, uh, on lesbian and gay parents and childbearing, and on lesbian and gay uh, adults. As the research appeared, I felt a strong responsibility to include it. Uh, more recently, we have an increasing body of research on transgender children, and I have included that in the last couple of editions of my text. So it's a high priority for me, and I plan to pay serious attention uh, to diversity, equity, and inclusion of all kinds. can't really understand development without doing that. The Textbook Life by an Author coming on the next CCC podcast. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Christopher Keneally. 
Thanks for listening to this Velocity of Content podcast from CCC. Thank you.